Well, it is great uh, to be with you again. Um, as Grant said, tw- uh, we moved to Calgary in 1994 uh, to start SunWest, and in the fall of 95 uh, were the first uh, public services. And so SunWest is the same age as my youngest son, Matt, and, uh, and we've realized uh, as we've watched the journey since uh, we stepped out of leadership here um, six, seven years ago, uh, that uh, our feelings towards SunWest are the same as our kids. And, uh, and because of the, the connection we have, and some of you are like, well, like Andrew, his wife, uh, Lisa, I did their premarital, uh, was involved in their wedding, uh, and others where these connections go way back. So uh, SunWest, as for those of you who are regulars here, know we've had uh, some challenging times the last little while uh, with the departure of, of our senior pastor, Mark. And, um, and as I was preparing for it, I had already said yes to this time slot. Uh, but those events then transpired in the meantime. And so, of course, he asked the Lord, what do you want me to say uh, in this context at this time? So if you're here as a, as a first-time guest or, or you popped in, um, you're going you're gonna to kind of hear a family talk from, I'm going to say from, you know, from dad. Uh, I'm going to pull the dad card. Uh, I figure after serving here 19 years, I can do that. Um, and if not, I'm moving away anyway, so too bad. Uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, and uh, uh, so that's what I've been, how I've been seeking the Lord and in, in preparing for today. And, and we're in this series, the 316 series. And so I felt God put on my heart 1 John 316. So if you have your Bibles or your app, uh, you can look up 1 John, the book of 1 John, where we are going to spend some time this morning. Uh, and, uh, and I think some of the things he says to us there is very uh, appropriate, both for our context and what's happened here, but also, I think, just whatever, wherever your life is at, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower or um, you're trying to figure out what, where God is in your life, I think what, I, what he's put on my heart for you this morning is critical in understanding how to walk through difficult things. And we all go through difficult things at one point or another. So let me... Let me pray, and we are going to jump in. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. Thank you for how you have worked in and through this church for a couple of decades. Thank you that you desire to do that today and going forward. Thank you for the different leaders over the years. Thank you for the staff. And Father, uh, your hand is on this place. You desire to pour your spirit out on us as you've done in the past, and you want to continue doing that. And what you invite us to is to press into you, to hold tight to you, to walk with you, to listen for your voice, and to follow in obedience. And I pray this morning will be a, will be a reflection of your heart for us and the things you call us to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, uh, my first church that I worked in, in was in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, a church called Forest Grove Community Church. And uh, I led a men's group there. We met downtown in one of the hotels because one of the hotel managers was, was in the group, so he hosted us. And as we're uh, going through these weekly meetings, about five of us, uh, we were, one day we were going and walking through Galatians. In the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 1, 
Uh, and I'll just read, you don't have to look it up. I'm just going to read it for you. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another b- believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should, and should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So I asked the guys, okay, so one of your friends does something that is harmful to their walk with God and to relationships around them. Do you step in? Do you go after them? What do you do? And, and the group was made up of uh, myself, three guys who had walked with God for quite a while, and a new believer who was uh, about 40 years old, a businessman. And so as we're going around the circle of guys, you know, are giving me great Canadian answers. Right? Well, I don't know. Like, you know, we should sort of stick to ourselves and should be very tolerant. And all the typical things Canadians would say, basically meaning, I don't want to get involved. Then the guy, I'll call him Gord, the new believer, goes, are you kidding me? Of course we go after him. He's hurting himself, his walk with God, and other people. Then he tells us this story. He said, just recently, one of my friends, in fact, the person who was used to lead me to become a Christ follower, uh, had a dark period in his life. He left his wife, got together with another woman, took off, and went to Kelowna. Well, what'd you do, Gord? I got on a plane as soon as I heard about it, went to Kelowna, found the hotel they were in, knocked on the door and told them, you have been an example to me. You are betraying that example. You're betraying God and your family. You need to come home with me now. (laughs) It's very Canadian. (laughs) And he did. He did. The other side of me was going, what did the woman do? It's like, see ya. <laughs> he did. It was amazing. And the rest of the guys were, you know, the longtime believers were kind of going, well, yeah, I guess he did the right thing. Well, of course he did. Awkward, but appropriate. Why do I tell the story? Because I think the spirit of that is what Jesus would do. And he did with his followers at different times. So in other words, when, when people are doing things or saying things that are hurtful to the body of Christ, to themselves, we do not, as Christ followers, have the privilege or the right to just sit back. That doesn't work biblically. That doesn't work biblically. Friends say things. And in fact, if you read through the New Testament, all the letters, the pastoral epistles, they're called. Epistle is a letter written to the churches. So you have the letter to the church in Corinth and et cetera, et cetera. Every one of those letters is uh, an apostle, one of Jesus' disciples writing to that church in that location because something is going on that is messing up the local church. That's a story in every one of them. And there is a sense of urgency with which they write. Why? Because they want the church to glorify God and they want the people to honor each other. That's why every one of those letters is written. They're not written because life is going so well. They're written because of the aspirational hopes of the apostle, often someone who started the church and then moved on to start another one, is writing to that community. And with that as a background, we go to 1 John. 1 John 3.16, the the passage that we will look at says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us, 
So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. So why is John saying this at this time in history? Now, 1 John's an interesting book because we, uh, we uh, don't know very much about the context in terms of the specifics of the book. Like, it doesn't give us a whole bunch of background, but if you read the different scholars, and they've kind of, you know, of course, done lots of homework in trying to figure out who wrote it, what was the context. And the common belief is it was written by John the Apostle, and it was written to the church in Ephesus. And if you go actually just outside of Ephesus is a church attributed uh, to where John lived, and they believe he died. He was there taking care of Jesus' mother, Mary. Uh, in fact, Gwen and I visited that church or the ruins of that church a couple of years ago. Uh, it is known as the Church of St. John, and they tell you this is where we think Mary lived, and, and Ephesus is a few miles away. And John was writing into that context uh, because he was worried about the church because there were false teachers who were trying to move the people in Ephesus away from the appropriate truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he's writing to these people. And in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and you can flip there, um, he, he lays out sort of his foundation for writing, his credentials, if you will. He says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to him that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the father and then, when, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. So what does John do? He says, hey, I have a firsthand account of being with Jesus. Why does he do that? Because it gives him authority. He's not giving a secondhand account, thirdhand account. He's saying, no, no, I was there. We were there. Saw it firsthand passing it on to you firsthand, and he's kind of ramping it up. Why? Because he's trying to build a foundation for the people in Ephesus to listen to him. Why is he doing that? Because he's very concerned about them. That's why. And you see that again and again in, in uh, the pastoral epistles. Why is it so important? First John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. He says, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong uh, with us. So he has a sense of urgency because there's false teachers, which is when he talks about the Antichrist. I mean, there's one major one the scriptures talk about. But the Antichrist are also false teachers who are trying to pull people away from the truth of who Jesus is and, uh, and what it means for us as the people of God to follow and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying they used to be with us and now they've left. So we know they weren't a part of us, but they're still trying to pull their teeth, their claws back into that community and trying to lead people astray. And so John goes, that's why this is so important. That's why we have to talk about this. That's why he has a sense of urgency. You know, as, as a founding... Uh, pastoral couple, uh, the thing that has, uh, we've noticed, you know, we've admitted, we left uh, the pastorate here six, seven years ago, 
but we've kept attending. And it's just like watching your children in the sense that when things are going well, you celebrate. And when you see struggle, it just breaks your heart. It just breaks your heart because you want the best. Not just because, you know, you, you poured your lives into this place like we did. That was a privilege. But because we know God's heart for you. We know God's heart for his bride. And you're his bride in a place called SunWest. And so our hearts have, have, uh, have really struggled to watch struggle because we love you. And even though we're moving away, that doesn't change that. This place will always be dear to us. Always. And so there's a sense of urgency that I have coming out of that when I see struggle. Not because I'm not grieved by struggle itself. I've said for years, if you've got people, you've got problems because there's people. The only perfect church is an empty church. As soon as two people walk in, you got, you know, it's the old joke about the, uh, the guy on the, on the, who was stranded on an island. And they finally find him and, and, uh, and there's two buildings on the island. And they go, well, what's that building? Well, that's the church I go to. Well, what's that building? Well, that's a church I used to go to. <laughs> it's a story of people. That's kind of how it works. But you're like family to us. And when we see struggle, it breaks our hearts. And our prayers have been constant and daily for you, for staff, for relationships, for leadership team, I mean, I sat on leadership team for 19 years. I know what those meetings are like when things are not going well and how difficult they are and how challenging they are. And also you need to know how God has and continues to work through this body. God has a unique call on everybody, not just everybody, but everybody, the church of Christ. And to hear, you know, 12 kids making decisions this week to, for Jesus to be the forever friend shows how that continues, regardless of struggle. Why? Because God is still God. The Spirit is still working, regardless of what we're walking through. You know, people have often said to me, man, I wish I was part of the first century church. I said, really? You obviously have not read your Bible. Like, just read through the letters from the apostles to the churches. What's in them? Sexual deviancy, lawsuits, uh, all kinds of tension and complaining and false teaching and adultery and, and sinfulness just pouring out of these places. In fact, Corinth, which was the most spiritually gifted church, was the most messed up church in what they permitted. So when people say, man, I wish we were like the first century church, I go, oh, I'll take a pass on that. Except for Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. I'll take those. I want to live in that for as long as I can. But we don't even know exactly how long they lived in that sort of idyllic period. But it wasn't very long. So as I said, if you've got people, you've got problems. Because that's the reality. That's the history so when people complain about a local church, 
You know, my last job, I traveled the country, heard all kinds of complaints about churches from coast to coast and around the world, actually. And of course, my, I mean, if you've been here a while, you've heard me say this before. You know, people say, I found the perfect church. I go, don't go there. Well, why not? Because you're going to ruin it. <laughs> no, you know, why? Well, I know you. <laughs> you're not perfect. So it'll be great for a while, but then they're going to get to know you and you're going to get to know them and you're going to see the warts and wrinkles and suddenly it's not perfect. Now, I don't joke about that to minimize the pain that happens in people's lives because pain is very real. Broken relationship is very real. Unmet expectations are very real. That's why when the, when the biblical writers are writing, there is such urgency to what they write. And why they always call people back to the reality of who Jesus is, the centrality of the cross, the power of the risen Lord, the power of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So John chapter 3, verse 16, the first half of the word there is, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. The verb translated we know is not just information, it's like an accumulation of information and experience based on deep reflection and an understanding of a growing knowledge and experience of the reality of the sacrifice that Christ made. It's like the aha when you become a Christ follower, like these 12 kids, and then that grows in depth and, and strength as you understand what that actually means. More and more and more. And the fact that you can't earn what Jesus did you can't buy it. You can't make a deal for it. You don't deserve it. It's unmerited grace. And so John is taking this group of people who he's worried about, and he says, hey, let's just center ourselves here. Remember, I saw Jesus firsthand, he says. Touched him with my hands, saw the death, saw the resurrection. So I'm speaking from authority is what he's telling them. So let's get back to the reality of the risen Lord and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf on the cross. The NIV says that he laid down his life for us. In other words, it was an intentional, willful act on his behalf so that he would take our sin upon himself to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's grace. Absolute, ridiculous grace. And because there's nothing you could do, I can do to earn it, buy it, deserve it. That when he says to us, I've given you my grace, and I'm asking you to follow me in obedience, we actually can't say no. Like if we did something to buy it, earn it, deserve it, work for it somehow, then you can say, well, wait a minute, look what I did. But because we didn't do anything, we have no bargaining chips to try and manipulate God. I don't know if you've ever been the recipient of, of sort of uh, spontaneous grace. I know I've had that happen to me in the past. And this doesn't even come close to the story. But a number of years ago, we had just gotten to Calgary and... Um, a friend of mine called me. We had student loans. We just came from seminary from California. And the dollar was going at 35 cents on the dollar. 
And uh, we owed a bunch of money uh, down there. We didn't have to pay interest because of the student loan, but we had to pay it back. And I got a phone call one day from a friend, and the friend said, how much do you owe? I said, $7,000 American. And he said, what's your account number at the school? Uh, okay, so I told him. I said, okay, I'll take over your payments. Done. Paid for. Now, my human condition says, okay, you know, I'll pick up the next one. But I can't. It's like you want to say, you know, it's like when you buy lunch. Okay, I'll buy next time. Okay, I'll pick up your car loan next time. Well, no, I can't. I don't have the capacity. I'll pick up your kid's tuition next semester. It's on me. No, not going to happen. It's humbling. All you can say is, thank you. And it has to be enough. So you think about that in relationship to Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Right? It's just thank you. And that's all that he wants from us is our hearts and our leaning into him. Because of, remember the opening comments, we, were, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen, saw him with our own eyes, touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This is the one who is life itself who was revealed to us, and we have seen him, and now we testify and proclaim to him, or proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. That's the reality of who Jesus is. And John goes back to that place that firsthand experience, the life that was laid down for us by a specific deliberate act, his choice in obedience to the Father because the Father loves those whom he has created, which is us. First John chapter 2, verse 2, again, John is trying to drive this point home and he says, he, Jesus himself, is a sacrifice that atones for our sins, not only our sins, but also the sins of the world. too easy to make light of this, but it's the reality of what this ridiculous act of love has done, the sacrifice on behalf of others. And there's nothing greater you can do than to sacrifice your life for someone else. It's the greatest act of love there is. We know that. We understand that reality. And that's what Jesus did for us. So then, second half of the verse. John establishes, this is the one whom I saw, Jesus, is the one who did this for you. So let's just get oriented. So whatever false teaching they're hearing, whatever pain we're experiencing, whatever people we're upset with, he's saying, okay, let's put that aside for now and let's get our face aligned with the heart and the person of Christ. Let's get oriented to the fact that no matter how self-justified we feel and whatever uh, disappointment we're, we've experienced, the reality is that every one of us need to come before Jesus and to receive his grace and forgiveness. He goes, let's start there. And that's a pretty good starting place. Let's start there for each one of us. And then he goes to this. So, verse 16, the second half of chapter 3, he says, So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, this is interesting because this is in the church, right? He says, so give up your lives as well for, the, for your fellow church attendees is what he's saying in this context. He doesn't say give up your lives for the people you really like. He doesn't say give up your lives for the people who think like you. He's saying who's ever there, 
in this case in the church in Ephesus, give up your lives for each other, for fellow believers. C.S. Lewis has this great observation or this great quote. He says, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Isn't that something? Right? It's way easier loving people who love you back, who think like you. You know, the, the first time I went to Mozambique uh, on a mission trip, uh, went there, and the local context there is the locals will beg, borrow, and steal anything and everything from you. And there's certain mission settings you go to where when you help somebody, they're like, oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, when you help people there at that time, it was, well, you're white, you screwed us, you owe us, so there's no thank you coming. Here was the good thing about that, that I actually appreciated after a while, is at first you go, well, that's ungrateful. That's not very nice. But then I go, wait a minute, who am I serving? Am I doing this so that they say thank you to me and I feel good about me? Or am I doing this because I'm serving the Lord and he told me to come here? And their response, while it's appreciated if there's a positive response, their response is actually irrelevant. Because I'm not doing this for them in terms of their feedback. I'm doing it for them, but I'm actually doing this to serve the Lord. I'm not doing it to get a pat on the back. So it had, I had to process that because it was so in my face. And I went, this is actually very good because it's making me check the motives of my heart. But when you love somebody in your own body and you go, man, they're unattractive, they're unlovable, they're, they're messed up. Yep, but so are you. And so am I. Then John takes this really practical because most, most of us will never actually have to sacrifice our lives for one another. It's very unlikely, especially living in the West, it's very unlikely to happen. It might, but it is not the norm. And even for him, it wasn't normal. So in verse 17, he goes on to say, if someone has enough money to live well, sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? So he takes it from this altruistic, really high level and immediately drops it down to nuts and bolts of life. He says, so number one, if you... Have a resource, you see a need, and can meet it, do it. It's basically what he's saying. Very practical. And of course, in that day and age, there was a greater diversity of need. There was no, uh, no government programs. There was no place to go for help. The church was it, or the community was it. So a very practical place that he goes to. But I want to take it a little further than that this morning in our context. We have physical needs around us that we do need to meet. But by and large, living in a middle-class Western city that is, that, that is full of resource uh, in multiple ways, programs and, and all kinds of things that go on to help meet needs, I think we need to push this further into relational uh, needs, into spiritual needs, into community needs in terms of that relationship. Uh, I think we need to take it a place further, which is actually the place where most of us live 
in need. Particularly, I'd say, in this season in our church. We live in an incredibly uh, impoverished world because we're so individualistic. I feel like our slogan, our motto in North America is, you're not the boss of me. We hear our kids, when they're little, say that, but I go, oh, the adults say the same thing. They're just nicer about it. They won't say it up front. We just behave that way. We struggle with submission to leadership on all levels. Uh, When we don't agree with things, we tend to walk instead of work things through. That is the struggle that we have. We don't like the thought of repentance for sin because we don't believe that sin is actually an issue. Why? Because we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their actions. When, uh, for years and years, we did Alpha. And in Alpha, you're answering different questions about God and Jesus and, you know, all kinds of different things. And uh, what I realized after doing it for numerous years, you could answer all the questions that you wanted. But what I usually ran into with people who were struggling with becoming Christ followers after all the questions were answered was a simple thing. Will you submit your life to Christ? It was a submission issue. And will you actually own up to the fact that you need forgiveness for sin? All the answers for all the questions, you know, what about creation? What about the ark? What about the... Didn't matter. It came down to this core thing over and over and over. That's what I noticed repeatedly with our Calgary context is that it happened again and again and again. We struggle with the idea of forgiveness because we want our personal standard of justice met before we forgive anyone else. So they deserve it. So eight months ago, or just over eight months ago, I went through the most difficult leadership journey of my life. And I'm not going to spare you the details, Other than to say, I felt every emotion under the sun. I felt betrayal, uh, hurt, anger, disappointment, confusion. Uh, Went on the roller coaster ride. And everything inside of me wanted to extract my pound of flesh. Because I wanted justice on my terms. That was the emotional upheaval. Sort of just processing in my heart and mind, unfiltered. And um, I wanted to be vindicated for what, what I thought was unjust and inappropriate. But I had to come to the place where I left justice in God's hands. I had to process that went, you know what? What other people think is irrelevant. What my God thinks is relevant. And he is the one who is just. He is the one who knows the bigger story. He is the one who knows the future and where it will go. He is the one who will direct our paths. He is the one who is my hope and my joy and my restoration. And I got really wise words right at the crux of this thing happening, and they came from my wife. And she said to me, I didn't say that as a surprise. (laughs) They usually come from my wife, just to be clear. She said, no matter what happens, we need to honor people and we need to glorify God. No matter what happens, we need to honor people and glorify God because that's what Jesus would do. I went, you're right. Shoot. Can't argue with that. And then what the Lord does, 
how he works is, you know, I do my, my daily Bible reading, and it seemed like every day I opened up my Bible, I would read, and forgive as Christ forgive. It's like, oh, again. Like every day. I'm like, wait a minute, aren't there passages that don't talk about this? Let's go to the Old Testament. I want justice. Let's go wipe somebody out. <laughs> Call down fire from heaven. Here's a really funny one. So one day I'm meeting with one of the people who had really hurt me because I was meeting with them to forgive them. I get in my car that morning. I guess I had left it on a Christian radio station in another city uh, when I turned off the car. That morning, I get in my car, start the car, and as, as soon as the radio comes on, it's some radio preacher, and this is the first line. Who do you need to forgive today? <laughs> I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I was going to phone in. Shut up. I literally started laughing. God, you have such a sense of humor. You have such a sense of humor. But see, our great need is not the material need for the most part. I don't want to minimize that. It's emotional, it's spiritual, it's relational. We are called together as the body of Christ, but it's around the centrality of the cross of Christ who died for us and provided unmerited grace that covers everything in your life you ever have done, whatever sin you are doing, and whatever sin you will do. That's the reality of his grace. And then he says, I want you to think about other people. I want you to sacrifice your lives for each other. In every which way that that looks, So I keep asking myself, am I honoring people and glorify God, glorifying God by my words and my actions? And so daily I would dive into God's word. A couple of passages for you listed in this. Mark eleven twenty five, When you are praying, first forgive anyone who you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. As a consequence to unforgiveness. Colossians three thirteen. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. It's like, really? Like, not, not just forgiveness, but now i got to go to blessing? 1 Peter 3, 8 to 10. Finally, all you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't, pay re don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. He will grant you this, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Not a lot of wiggle room, is there? I kept looking for wiggle room. I didn't find any. So if you are harboring an offense, I don't care if this is tied to the church situation or something in your own life. It doesn't take long to live life and feel offended somehow. If you're harboring an offense, God calls us to forgiveness. Forgiveness is not because someone deserves it or asks for it. It's something you choose to do because you're saying justice is the Lord's. The old cliche on forgiveness or unforgiveness is that we drink the poison and hope it'll affect somebody else. 
right? That's what unforgiveness does to us. But not only does he say, okay, I want you to get to forgiveness. That's not the end goal. You go, oh, forgiveness. Okay, I'm good. I'm there. No, no, no. He says, that's the middle point. I want you to move to blessing. I want you to pray blessing on these people. That's what I want you to do. So again, why should we be like this? Why should we forgive? Why should we be tenderhearted? 1 John 3, 16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also have to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. The reality of Jesus' outrageous act of love demands that we do the same. That's what he calls us to. Not because people ask. Not because they're sorry. Not because there's going to be some sense of justice. We forgive because our Heavenly Father forgave us. Very simple. Just not easy. And then he calls us to bless. And I've done lots. I write out my prayers quite often. I've written out prayers with people's names. Father, bless so and so. And I'm like, ooh, really? Do I really want that? So my wife and I recently saw the shack. And one of the lines that stuck with me is uh, the line that God says there is, uh, I'm particularly fond of this one. So I thought about the people who have really betrayed me and hurt me. And uh, I went, yeah, Jesus is particularly fond of that one. And I can put their name in there. I might not be fond of them, but God is. God knows their story, past, present, and future. He calls them to himself. He's made them their own if they're Christ followers. And he wants to work in their heart the same way he's worked in mine. I'm particularly fond of this one. I go, I can't argue with that. Because I want that fondness to come to me too. And I need people to forgive me as well. I'm particularly fond of this one. God's love is equal regardless of our offense. Thirdly, Jesus' prayer for us. What did he pray? John 17 verse 21 is, it's called the great priestly prayer, the high priestly prayer. It's his prayer for us as God's people. And it culminates in John 17 verse 21 where he says, I pray that they will all be one, meaning us, just as you and I, Jesus and the Father, are one, as you are in me, Father, I am in you, and may they be in us so, here's why, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Why does he want us to work all this stuff out? It's not just because he wants us to get along. That's too low a bar. He wants us to work this out so that the very way this community does community and walks through difficulty, which is guaranteed will happen in every community, he says, I want the reflection of that processing to be so God-honoring that the world goes, man, obviously Jesus is real. That's why he prays for unity for us. It's not uniformity. It's not unity at the lowest common denominator so we all just get along or all believe the same thing. He says, no, no. The unity is there so the people go, Jesus must have been sent by the Father. The gospel must be true because look at his people. They're not perfect. In fact, man, are they flawed. Holy cow. But boy, do they work it through. I've never seen forgiveness like that. I've never seen blessing like that. I've never seen people stick it out like that with each other and for each other. I've never seen people sacrifice like that for each other. Not because there's a benefit coming back to them. But 
for a higher reason. That, friends, is what he calls us to. That is my heart for us. See, forgiveness is an act of the will. It is a gift offered by the offended party. It is never deserved. It is never earned. So who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to extend grace to? This may have nothing to do with stuff that's happened in our church recently. I find as soon as I start asking God and I pull out a pen, I go, oh, oh, oh yeah, okay. Oh, didn't remember that one. Yeah, I better do that. And the list is always longer than I, than I want to admit. And I have to own more than I want to own every time I do it. And yet the process is incredibly freeing because it draws me closer to Jesus. And it's real simple. And as we're going to call, I'll invite the band back up. And as we, we close and sing, um, I would invite you to ask God, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to extend grace to? Who do I need to bless? And there's a simple way to do it. Like, forgiveness isn't rocket science. It's just hard. Here's a simple prayer. A friend of mine, Doug Balser, has taught this and wrote this. He says, Jesus, I choose to forgive, fill in the blank, for making me feel, fill in the blank. I release them from my bitterness and to your care, for you will deal with them perfectly. I wish for them God's grace, even as you have freely given me your grace and kindness. So as we sing, I invite you to ask God that. Who do you need to forgive? I invite you to ask God what he wants to do in your life. I invite you to say, whatever pain you're feeling in your life story to say, here it is, Jesus. I'm, laying, I'm letting go of this. I'm giving this to you. Pain, disillusionment, hurt, disappointment, whatever it is, lay it at the feet of the cross because his sacrificial gift on your behalf covers that. And in its place, he wants to give you his love, the infilling of the Holy Spirit to guide you forward personally and corporately for his honor and for his glory. Because that's what he desires to do. Let's stand for worship. But as we close, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, if as you've opened yourself up to the Lord and said, God, who do I need to forgive? The second uh, piece in that would be, what do you need to go and say to them? And we're happy to come and, and, uh, and have you come and pray for you to process that. Love to do that. But the powerful thing is to say, is to meet the person and say, I forgive you. And you, need, you don't need a big rationale. You don't need to, re again, say, I forgive you for doing this, this, and this as a way of sticking in the knife in a backhanded way. You just say, I forgive you. And if they want a further conversation, that's up to them. The point is the scriptures call us to do our part because of the reality of what Jesus did for us. The sacrifice for each other relationally. If you're here this morning and you've never taken that first step of receiving Christ's forgiveness, uh, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'd love to walk you through that. If that's the place you're at, and I'll be available.
God has great things for this church because he loves you and he died for you. He has called you as his own. He has poured out his spirit on you and he has a plan for you. Struggle and difficulty is just part of the journey for us personally as well as corporately. The disappointment is not that there is struggle. Maybe in how it's played out because there's always disappointing things that happen. The disappointment is when we don't step into Christ to walk through and we don't apply the forgiving things he calls us to that he's already extended to us and extend that to each other. And you are stronger together because you work it through. That is the reality and the power of the gospel. That is my heart for you. It has been such a privilege to be part of this place for the last 23 years. And you'll always have a deep part in our hearts. My wife will be around till Christmas. Uh, I'm leaving in a month. So we'll be in and out. But no, you have a deep, deep, profound place in our hearts. And you have our respect. Because you love Jesus. And you want to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to die for us, that he so willingly laid down his life in obedience to the Father's direction. Because, Father, you love your creation. You love us. And you want an intimate relationship with us to be possible, and that's done so because of Jesus. And you sent your spirit to fill us so that we can know your direction day in and day out and live in the power of the resurrected Lord who defeated sin and death, who initiated his kingdom, which will come in all its glory at the return of Christ. And Father, I pray that SunWest would be a people who continually press into you, who continually live out the calling you have on this body to be a lighthouse in this city, in this country, and around the world. Father, I thank you for the leaders here. I thank you for the people who are here. Father, I know that you want to come and speak into the pain and the brokenness. Father, I pray for Mark and Tammy. I know that you love them, we love them. Pour your spirit out on them. Father, walk in them and give them peace that is uh, much greater than the situation and give direction for their future. And Father, give us the insight to put away the lies of the enemy who wants us to be self-justified in our pain and our hurt. And Father, open up our hearts and minds to the reality of your gospel that invites us into healing with you once and for all and with each other time and time again. Because you're particularly fond of all of these. So we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for SunWest. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So again, the prayer folks are here. I'm happy to pray with you as well. And if God's put someone on your heart, go talk to them before, and they're in this place, talk to them before you leave this place today.